Oh, come on. Good morning, everybody. How you feel today? Make some noise if you're feeling good. Anybody glad to be in the house of God? What an honor it is to be here with all of you. Hey, before we jump into the message, I always like to take the incredible opportunity, look at the cameras in the back of this room, and say a great big hello to our extended family all the way in Germantown, Maryland. Go Church. Come on, welcome Go Church today. We are one church in two locations. We've got our wonderful church family here in the South Metro Atlanta area. And then again, all the way north in Germantown, Maryland, 702 miles from here is our Go Church campus. We love you. We welcome you today. And so glad that you're tuning in with us. We also want to say a great big hello to all of you that are viewing online through the online experience. I know that we're kind of on the bookend of the 4th of July weekend or week, and so some of you all went out of town last week, and then others of you are out of town this week, and so if you are out of town and you're watching via the live stream, we welcome you. Come on, welcome all of the online viewers today. Yep. And then, and then in my opinion, the most important group that we always love to welcome and give honor is our incredible military, the service men and women that are protecting our, oh, come on. On a week like this, let's show some respect. Come on, yes. So if you're tuning in online, we welcome you. Every branch of the military, thank you for, for being with us, whoever you are, wherever you are. Just a quick, a fun story. Somebody told me that last week there was a, a group of military personnel in Turkey that surrounded a laptop computer, and they watched the playback of a Sunday morning service here. Come on in, that fantastic. So we're leveraging the power of technology to reach people for Jesus, and that is so, so incredible. Well, as you know, uh, we are in week number two of a series, or if this is your, your first time with us here, we, we're introducing the second week of a series that we're doing called the Book of Ephesians. The Book of Ephesians has six chapters to it, and so every week over the next six weeks, we're going to take a look at a, a different book. And so last week, we looked at chapter number one. Did you enjoy the word last week? Come on, wasn't it powerful, life-changing, awesome? And then today, we're going to jump in and, and, and dig a little deeper into chapter number two. I don't want to spend a lot of time in, in the recap of week one, but just to catch all of us up on the same page, let me highlight a few things that I think uh, would be important for you to know as we navigate through a chapter two of this, of this book. To start off with, the, the ministry of Paul in Ephesus is really interesting, isn't it? Even the lights are interesting right now. And so the movement of the letter and then the movement of the lights, it just creates for really incredible ambiance. And Paul's ministry in Ephesus is interesting. I want to give you a homework assignment early on uh, in this message. If you got five minutes later on today, you got to do this today, okay? And, uh, and, and Jesus is watching, so I'm going to throw that out there, okay? But at some point today, I want you to take five minutes, and I'd love for you to read Acts chapter 19. Now, I know it's not in the book of Ephesians, but we learn about Paul's missionary and ministry experience in Acts 19. So it tells us about the ministry that he had in, in Ephesus. And so if you got five minutes a day, just read Acts 19. I think it will really paint a broader perspective and picture for you as to what's taking place in Paul's ministry. Now, in Paul's day, Ephesus was a massive city. It was a huge city. And as a matter of fact, it was 
pardon me, the commercial center of Asia Minor. So there was a lot of trade that went in and out of that massive city. A lot of money was flowing in and out of that city. It was also known as the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And that's important too. And if you read Acts 19, you'll see how a riot took place because the men of the town became really afraid that Paul was going to disrupt the selling of little handmade shrines to the goddess known as Artemis or also known as the temple of Diana so so these men were making a profit off of this this goddess and Paul was interrupting that because he was preaching that there is only one God well come on it's a good place to say amen there's only one God and so so they they would establish this epicenter in Ephesus as a, a, a place of worship to the Greek and Roman gods for over two years though Paul had a really effective missionary presence in Ephesus And so he would go around the city, this massive city, and he would declare that Jesus is Lord. He would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we know the gospel means good news. Somebody say good news. So he would preach the good news of the gospel and and the effects of his preaching through the anointing of the Holy Spirit was that many people came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. As a matter of fact, Paul, when he was writing to uh, the Colossians, he he had a phrase that he used, and I've I've etched it on the back of my iPad here. He, he, He talks about this. He says, I do not preach with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. And I kind of took that motto and said, okay, God, that's my prayer too. I don't want to preach with wise and persuasive words. You did not call me to preach to impress. You called me to preach to impact. And that's what Paul was doing. Paul was impacting people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was giving them revelation and the scales that were on their eyes, keeping them from the truth, was being pulled back until finally they could see the glory and the truth of God's word. And you know this, you know that, that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And it is the truth that ultimately sets us free. So Paul was moving in and around the city. He was preaching the gospel. People were getting saved. And really a revival happened in the city of Ephesus. A sad reality today, though, is knowing that that once revival central, that once city that was on fire with the truth of God's word, today is now the site of a Turkish village. And there's not one single Christian church in existence. Heartbreaking, huh? Years later, uh, after Paul was in Ephesus, he was arrested. Uh, he, he, was, he was arrested a few times, and uh, one time he was on house arrest, but in this particular setting, Paul was in a Roman jail cell. He was chained and shackled. Uh, some even believe that he was connected to a Roman soldier so that, so that he couldn't escape. And while he was in this prison, he took out a pen and he took out a piece of paper or multiple sheets of paper, and he began to write a letter to his friends in Ephesus. He began to write a letter to the Christians that were in that city. And all throughout this letter, you see the movement of his writing. And you learned this last week, but I want to show it to you one more time. Watch this. The first first half of this book in Ephesians is divided into two distinct parts. And in the first half of this book, Paul is just preaching the gospel. Paul's just telling the truth. And then, and then as he introduces the second half, so, so verses, or chapter, rather, 4, 5, and 6, he connects the two distinctive parts by one word, and that word is therefore. 
So in the front half, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is just telling the gospel story, right? And then he says, therefore, and, and it's a transitional word, and he emphasizes it on important. It's a strategic word. He says, therefore, that gospel changes everything. The gospel that I've just shared with you, the gospel that I'm reminding you about, it changes everything, and it affects every single part of your life. When you choose to believe the word of God, therefore, something happens internally and externally. If you believe that, somebody say amen. Now, when you look at the whole overview of these six chapters, so chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, there, there is a driving thought there, there is this beautiful driving theme weaved in and out of all of, of Paul's writings to the Ephesians. And this is that thought, and it still stands true today, that in Christ, his story, the story of the cross, the story of the resurrection, come on, the story of his inevitable return, it reshapes our story. Whenever we are introduced to his story, our story is forever changed. Now, I want you to keep this in mind because we're jumping into chapter 2. Uh, remember, he's writing to the Christians that are in Ephesus. He's, he's talking to them directly. But what I really hope that you'll see in, in chapter 2 specifically and all throughout these six chapters is Paul explaining. Paul is saying, look, what happened to Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection... It also happened to those in Ephesus, it happened to Paul himself, and it can happen to those that are here today. He says, hey, what, what, what God sent his son through, that process of his death, his burial, and his resurrection is available to every single one of us if we choose to receive it. It's a good place to say amen right there, by the way, because that, that's good preaching. So, so let's jump into chapter two. Now, now for, for, for any preacher, but but certainly a Pentecostal preacher, you know, it's hard, it's hard to take, you know, this one chapter and try to break it into its verses and do all of that in about 40 minutes. So, so my approach to chapter 2 was a little different, and whenever I write sermons, I have two or three different ways of trying to put thoughts together, depending on the series or the season of ministry or even the season of my life personally, but but I took Ephesians chapter 2 and I, and I studied it for my personal gain. Not, not just to preach it, but to grow from it. And one of, my, one of my greatest methods of Bible study is this approach called SOAP. I, I didn't create it. I can't take credit for it. But it has been transformative in my life. It stands for this, S-O-A-P, Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. This may be one of the most important things you hear all day, by the way, because if you're here or you're at Go Church or watching online and you struggle with understanding or comprehending God's word, if you open up the Bible, it doesn't make a lot of sense to you or you don't get a lot from it, why, why, why don't you try soaping in the word, washing in the word? Take a scripture, observe it. How can you apply it practically to your life and then, and then just say a prayer? So that's what I did with Ephesians chapter 2. And when I begin to soap... Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses jumped out of my Bible. And I'm going to sit there for the next few minutes. Ephesians chapter 2, specifically looking at verses 1 through 10. Paul writes these words and he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the, in the sons of disobedience. I want, I want to sit there for just a moment because when Paul opens up chapter 2, he places an emphasis on their past. He's not talking about who they are. He's talking about who they were. And Paul says, look, hey, I, I know who you used to be. He says, I, I was there and I saw that you were dead in your sins. Yeah, you may have had physical breath in your lungs, but there was no spiritual life to you at all. And so Paul is saying from, from a prison, by the way, he's saying, do not forget where you came from. Don't, don't forget your old life. Don't, don't forget about how God brought you out of that old life. And let me just pause right here and tell you, I know I'm not where I need to be in Christ. I'm a work in progress myself. But I think, God, I'm not who I used to be either. Come on, church. Uh, yep, and you, you don't have to remind me because I know I've got a long way to go. But what you don't know is I've come a long way too. There, there was a time where I too was dead in my sins. And I, I think there are times we need to close our eyes and remember just how far God brought us. And, and Paul says, he says, look, you were dead. And don't, don't you ever forget that that lifestyle that you were once living, that lifestyle will always lead you to death. In another letter, when he was writing to the Romans, he said it this way. He said, for the wages of sin is death. But he goes on, and I like what he does here because he identifies that this journey that you and I are on, this life that we live, he identifies it as a walk. As a walk. He, he could have said, in which you formerly ran, in which you formerly jumped, in which you formerly frolicked. But he didn't say that. He identified this Christian life as a, as a walk. And I need to tell you, because this is, this is the truth of God's word. There are only two styles of walking. There, there is the sinful walk, and then there is the Christian walk. And, and you cannot walk both walks at the same time. Hey, as a matter of fact, if you attempt to walk the sinful walk and the Christian walk, the Bible says that you are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. Come on. At the end of the day, we have to make a decision to choose which walk we are going to walk. Can I hang out right here for a minute? Everybody good? Let, let me just remind you that your walk every single day is in a battle. Every, every day, the enemy is trying to persuade you and tempt you to walk according to the desires of your flesh, to, to walk according to the things that you want to do. Yet God desires for you to walk according to his spirit. And watch this. The only person that can determine the style of walk that you walk is you. No, nobody else can shape that walk. Nobody else can walk that walk for you. As a matter of fact, your Bible says that you ought to work out your own salvation. That at the end of the day, you have the responsibility that, that, in order, that in order to live your life for Jesus, to experience this new life in Christ, you have to choose the Christian walk. Let me just pause for a minute because this is important. Because I think there's some theology that floats around. There's some misunderstanding of scripture that floats around. And I just need to, I need to bring some clarity here. Your grandmother's walk 
will not save you in your walk. Your, just because your dad was a preacher and you're a PK does not guarantee that you get entry into heaven because your dad walked a righteous life. You are responsible for you. And I, I think that we've done enough, and I've been there too, where we play the blame game, blaming everybody else for the reason we walk the walk that we walk. But at the end of the day, Paul says it's about time that you put on a new pair of shoes. Come on, church. That you begin to walk a new journey in Christ, and, and you, have to, you have to decide that. And this isn't the only place in Scripture that, that Paul addresses this spiritual journey to, to be a walk. If you keep reading Ephesians even, you'll get to Ephesians chapter 5, and he says, Be careful then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Another translation says it like this. Uh, Paul says, Be careful then how you walk, not foolishly. He wrote a letter to the Colossians and he says, once you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, you need to walk in him. Do you see that? And then, and then even in Jesus, if, if you don't take Paul's word to heart, maybe you take the words of Jesus to heart. Because in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And what Paul's doing here in the first two verses of chapter number two is he's reminding them, hey, you were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses, and you used to walk this way. Don't, don't ever go back. Don't ever go back. Let, let me say it like this. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep, keep your eyes on Jesus. I know the battle's hard. I know it can be exhausting. I know you can feel overwhelming, but he says, don't, don't ever forget where you came from and you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Just keep, keep marching forward because we've all been given marching orders and, and we are to walk according to the Spirit of God that is alive in us. But Paul doesn't stop there. i got to hurry. I could stay there all day. But, but I love the intentionality that Paul uses here in verse number 3. He says, among them we too all formally lived. I love what he does here because Paul addresses the reality that we are all sinners. I like, I like what he does. He doesn't want them to think that he's, he's preaching down to them or that he's mad at them or that he's angry at them. So he addresses, look, hey, all of you, you were once dead in your sins. You used to walk a certain way and now you don't anymore. And guess what? We all, we all have been there. We've all done that. It was Paul who wrote in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all walked, Paul is saying, that sinful walk. We've all talked that sinful talk. We've all lived that sinful life. And, and Paul would know. If anybody would know about that sinful life, it was Paul. Because before he had that encounter with God, before, before he had that supernatural moment, it was Paul who was going into the Christian homes and dragging by their hands and feet Christian men, women, and children. And Paul was throwing them into prison. He was persecuting them and throwing them into prison. And so Paul is saying, hey, I, I know what it's like to be dead in my sin I know what it's like to, to walk a sinful walk. And so Paul is saying, hey, I'm not writing to you based off hearsay. 
I'm not writing to you based off a place of hatred. He says, I'm writing to you out of my own personal testimony. Paul is saying, if God, if God can rescue somebody like me, then I know that God can rescue people like you. Let me just take a moment because I think it's important for you to know this about, about your pastor. Every time that I stand behind this pulpit and I hold this microphone, I am preaching from my own personal testimony. I know who I was and I know where I was headed. I was lost in my sin and I was bound by addiction and held in, in bondage and the enemy set traps that I would often fall into. But, but in 1999, not long after I graduated from high school, I heard, there's only been two times in my life that I've heard the auditory voice of God. Where I heard God speak only two times and both of those times have changed the trajectory of my walk forever. Yeah. And in 1999... When I was walking for the world, I heard the voice of God call me by my name, JC. When I heard that, I knew right away that God was calling me. And in that moment, he saved me of my sin. He filled me with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he put a call on my life for ministry. And my life has forever been different. You ever seen a miracle? You're looking at one right now. Because at the end of the day, and I know this isn't popular preaching, but, but I was on my way to hell. And, and by the way, there is a hell. And we choose if we walk right into it or not. And I was on my way to hell, but by the grace of God, he intercepted my life and he changed me forever. When I stand, when I stand up here, I'm not preaching about a God that I've only heard about. I'm not preaching about a God that I've imagined or some God that I've dreamed up. Man, when I preach, and I preach with passion, some people say, why do you yell all the time? This ain't yelling. You want to hear some yelling? You should come to my house and hear how Kimberly talks to me. That's yelling. I'm just kidding. She don't yell. She just gives the look. Come on, man. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. When I stand up here and I hold this microphone, I preach from a place of passion. Because it wasn't that long ago that I, I was dying. And when I preach, I'm not preaching down to you. I preach with passion because I know exactly what it's like to be lost in my sin. To wake up every day hating my life. To wake up every day wondering how I can, can band-aid the pain. How I can somehow fill with a temporary, you know, uh, substance in order to fill that gap that was in my heart. That lump that was in my chest that thought that God had abandoned me and forsaken me. And I, I took advantage of everything that the world had to offer. But guess what? The only thing that fixed that void was Jesus. Oh, come on. You ought to say a better amen right there than you just did. It was Jesus. And I learned at 19 years old that Jesus is the answer. Come on. Jesus is the answer. And when you think about it, this, this is revolutionary. That, that you can be walking one way and then all of a sudden God can watch this. turn. Y'all better watch out now. God can turn your life around in a moment. In one moment. God can change everything. He, he did it for the people of Ephesus. He, he, he did it for Paul. 
He did it for JC, and I believe that, that he can do it for you. And you want to know how he does it? Let me, let me show you. Now, when I was soaping Ephesians chapter 2 and I came to verse number 4, I, I saw what I believe is the two most powerful words in all of the Bible. Matter of fact, uh, I dare you to study your Bible enough and show me two more powerful words than the two words I'm about to show you. Are you ready? Watch this. Paul says this. He, he keeps writing. He's just writing, and he's talking about, hey, you were dead in your sins. You used to walk this way. I know what that feels like. I've been there. And then watch what he says. He says, but God. But God. Say it with me on the count of three. One, two, three. But God. Let me tell you right now, church, but God is heaven's answer to every problem that has ever been upon us. But God is heaven's answer to every problem that you've created for yourself. And can I just tell you, not everything you go through is God's fault. And not everything you go through is Satan's fault. Sometimes we walk through self-inflicted, stupid storms. It's our own fault. But even when we create the controversy, but God. But God is the most dominant, destructive, and damaging two-word phrase that combats every spiritual warfare that Satan is able to throw up on us. Listen to me. I don't know every problem you're going through in this room. I don't know every challenge you're facing there at Go Church. I don't know what issues you might be dealing with with those of you watching online. But what I do know is, but God. Come on, somebody. Say amen right there. You might be in the deepest, darkest, most depressing hour of your life, but God, your body may be failing physically, but God, your marriage might be falling apart, your friendships might be all messed up, but God, your finances could be in disarray, but God, you may feel defeated, deflated, and like death is knocking on your door, but God, but God. But God, not but alcohol, not but pornography. Oh, somebody's got to hear me. Not, not but another woman, not but another man. Anybody hear what I'm trying to say? Not, not but the enemy of this world. It is but God. It is God who saves us and rescues us and redeems us and restores us. Come on, if you're going to clap, somebody ought to clap. It is but God. How are you feeling today? Everybody good? Good, because I'm going to keep on preaching. When you go throughout this Bible, you will see but God moments from cover to cover. All the way from Genesis to the last book of Revelation, you see but God. What about the time that Pharaoh encroached his plan upon the Israelites? It was but God that allowed them to, to see through Moses the Red Seas parted and then walk right through to dry ground. Come on. It was uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he threw three Hebrew boys in a fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered that the fire be heated up seven times hotter than usual. He sat back in his haughty throne. He crossed his arms of arrogance, and he said, Who is the God that can rescue you from my power? I've got two words for you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's but God. All of a sudden, he leaped up on his feet. He asked the servants that were around them, did we not throw three men in the fire? Yes, we did. Well, why do I see four of them walking freely 
in the fire. And one of them looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar ordered that the men come out of that fiery furnace and the Bible, your Bible, your Bible, sitting on some shelf collecting dust, full of life, full of hope, full of power. Your Bible says when those boys came up out of that furnace, they, there was not a scorched hair on their head. They didn't even smell like smoke. Come on, somebody. I believe, I believe that it, when I read scripture, I see it this way. They walked out of that fire and they said, who's your daddy now? Come on now. But God, on the count of three, say that with me again. One, two, three. What about when the disciples only had five loaves and two fish and 5,000 hungry people? It was but God that showed up. He served fish sandwiches. Everybody in the congregation got fooled, and then they went home with some leftovers because that's the kind of God that you serve. What about in Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain, when she lost her only child, she put him in a casket. They were in a, a funeral procession on the way to the grave site when all of a sudden, but God showed up. It was Jesus on the scene. He interrupted the funeral procession. He laid his hands on the casket and he said, young man, I say unto thee, get up. And all of a sudden that casket, oh my goodness, that casket's lid began to open. I think the undertaker was scared so much he gave the woman all her money back. Here you go, ma'am. You know, and that boy got up because we serve a but God. But you got time for two more? What about Jesus' best friend, Lazarus? He had been dead. Not only was he dead, but he was dead, 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 dead. Four days dead. The stench and the odor had already filled the tomb and the people that would walk up near. And it was Mary and Martha that were disappointed because they didn't think that their God was an on-time God. But all of a sudden, Jesus showed up at the right time. And out of his mouth, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And that tomb opened up and Lazarus walked on out in his mumpified, which was then glorified, right? He walked out and he was alive. Alive. This is what I'm telling you. Is that you serve a God that can interrupt anything that you're dealing with. It was, it was Satan that thought that he had Jesus defeated for sure. He saw Jesus hung on that cross. He saw, he saw them carry and drag his lifeless body to that borrowed tomb. And then all of a sudden on the third day, but God. And the tomb rolled away. And Jesus came up out of that grave. And let me just interject this thought. And the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is alive on the inside of us. Come on, somebody give, give me a good amen right there. But God. But God, watch this. He goes on though. He doesn't just stop there. He says this. But God being rich in mercy. Oh, I love this so much right here because he paints for us such a beautiful description of the God that you serve. You know, for some reason, so many of us, we grow up with this angry view of God. That God hates us. He's out to get us. That we're cursed. He doesn't love us. But, but it says here that God being rich in mercy. Can I tell you that anger, wrath, judgment, there's a time and place for all of that in God's character and attributes. 
But over all and above all, he is merciful. He's merciful. But the Bible says that the Lord delights to show mercy. As a matter of fact, let me jump out of the book of Ephesians, and I promise to come right back to it. Everybody feeling okay? All right, watch this real quick. I love teaching the scripture. Now, now you got to get this. Uh, this was written to, to the Israelites. That they were living under the judgment of God. Why? Because they chose to walk in rebellion. That was their decision. We will walk in rebellion. And watch what God says. He, he doesn't bring wrath and, and judgment and anger and all of that. He, he presents a non-threatening, life-giving, hope-giving message. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant, uh, remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. God is saying, look, the only reason I have to judge you is because you are continuing that walk of rebellion. He says, but I'd rather give you mercy because judgment goes against who I really am. I delight to show mercy. Watch what verses 4 and 5 continue to say. Being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love. His unending, unchanging, unconditional love. His great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our sins. Even when we dug our own grave. Even when we made some bad decisions. Even when we walked into a, a life for a mess that, that we knew we shouldn't be walking, even, even then, he made us alive. Come on, that's powerful, isn't it? He made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. Let me just take a moment and share this. Some of you today, you came into this room, you came into Go Church, and you, you are dead in your sins let me pause to give you this thought, though. Before a man can first know God, he must know himself. You have to see where you are. And you walked into this room, and maybe you knew it or not, and maybe it, maybe it takes this, this preacher to tell you that if you don't know Jesus, you are dead in your sins. But, but can I share with you that God loves you too much to leave you the way that you are? And so he sent his son Jesus to this earth, to die on that cross, to be put in that tomb, to be resurrected, and then inevitably return. And he took that same power that raised Jesus from the grave and to the Holy Spirit. He places it on the inside of us, and it is by grace that we have been saved. And here's what he does. You ready? Watch this. This is Paul just showing us this, this process, this pattern of Christian living. And he says this, and he raises us up. I love the imagery here because it's so fascinating to me. When I read this for the first time, I closed my eyes and I just imagined God, oh man, God opening up heaven on my behalf, re reaching down his, his one hand of grace and then stretching out his, his other hand of mercy into that deepest, 
darkest place of my life, the moment that I thought I've hit rock bottom and nobody can find me here, guess what? It was his great love that raised me up to new life. Uh, what, what I see is this. I see the psalmist David. It's in, in Psalm chapter 40, verse number 2. The psalmist David, he writes these words and he says, You lifted me up out of that slimy pit. He goes on. He says, you lifted me up out of the mud and out of the mire and you set my feet on a rock and you gave me a firm place to stand. Come on, isn't that beautiful? I'm telling you that no matter how deep you feel, no matter how lost you feel, no matter how unloved you feel, you have to know this. What can separate you from God's love? His grace and His mercy reaches the center of all sinners. He, he reaches to the, the lowest place. I remember, oh man, I remember what that felt like. I won't tell you the story, but I remember the lowest point in my life. But God, but God, let me tell you, and I know I've shared this thought before, but I never saw this coming in my life. I never saw that God would use somebody like me. Never. But God did. And it's just overwhelming to me that that he loved, let me, let me stop talking to you. Let me talk to me for a minute. Let me just, David said to encourage yourself in the Lord. It's just amazing to me that, that God, he would love J.C. Worley enough, not, not just to pull me up out of the life, that former life that I used to live. If that's all that God did, he, he would have done enough. But then to set my feet on a firm foundation in him so that through him I could go places I never thought I'd go in this world that I live. That is overwhelming. When I thought no one loved me, when I laid in my bed and I heard the voice of the enemy, take your life, nobody will miss you. End it all. Nobody will care. Let me tell you, God cared. And in that moment, man, he opened up heaven. And he reached down those big, old, loving, grace-filled hands. And he put them around my heart. And he whispered in my ear, I love you. I love you. Come on, is that not just overwhelming? And what Paul is doing, he's building and building and building all of these verses to get us to these three verses, 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, all of this leads us to this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, hey, where you are in your life right now, and those of you that are, have already accepted Jesus, you, you know this to be true, you cannot save yourself. 
You cannot rescue yourself. The best thing that you can do when you feel in the deepest of deep is to lift your hands as a sign of surrender and say, God, I'm exhausted. For years, for years in the summer, I would work youth camps as a lifeguard. I would, as a lifeguard. And uh, I loved it because A, my tan was on point. Come on, somebody. But B, they would give you a scholarship for your college. So, so I would lifeguard. Well, in order to be a lifeguard, you have to be CPR certified. You have to go through swim training, you know, and all of that. And I'll never forget that in the training of being a lifeguard, one of the first things they teach you is to somehow, in the chaos of the moment of someone drowning, to relay the message to the person in trouble, do not panic. The best thing you can do is just give up. Just give up. Because I, the lifeguard, I've got you. And, and, the more, and the more you flail around and you well about and you kick and you scream and you panic, you're going to kill both of us in this water. And let me tell you, some of you, that's you in this moment. You feel in the deepest of waters and you're trying everything you can with every bit of energy to save yourself. The best thing you can do is throw your hands in the air and say, God, I surrender. I trust that you will save me and you will set me free. You cannot save yourself. Just, just give up. The, the old school church would say it this way. Just let go and let God. You, you, you cannot save yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's the free gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. He goes on, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In these few verses, and I'll be done, Paul summarizes the redemption process for us to be saved, for us to be considered a part of the family of God, for us to, to now be called Christians. And this is what he says. I'm gonna show you three things and then, and then I'll pray for you. The first thing he says is we are saved by grace. Grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. This word grace is the Greek word charis. And it literally means unmerited favor. Let me work that out for you for just a moment because this is important for you to know. There is nothing in us that merits salvation. Nothing. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it, but by grace, you have been saved because God is gracious. God is kind. God is loving. God is merciful. Someone wants to find grace like this. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Even when you feel unloved, God, by his grace, still loves you. And that's exactly what God did. He reached down through his son Jesus to save us. And salvation is found in no one else. The Bible says, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Only he can save us by his grace. Now, I'm going I'm to mess with some of your uh, theology, your understanding of scripture. Grace cannot save you alone. 
Paul didn't stop there. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Watch. We have to have faith to receive God's gracious offer to us. My, my grandfather on my wife's mom's side, so for me by way of marriage, my grandfather by way of marriage, Kimberly's dad, granddad on her mom's side. Make sense? He, he did a whole thesis on the book of Ephesians a couple years ago. And so I asked for a copy of it because I thought, man, this is going to be so much content. I'm going to bring the house down. It was 115 pages. I couldn't understand hardly any of it. He's so gifted and brilliant in his writing, even even in his, his older years, the way that God speaks through him. But there was one line in that thesis that just jumped out at me, and and it's so good. Uh, Reverend Gann said this, if grace is the food, then faith is the utensil we use to pick it up and eat it. Wow. If, If grace is the food on our plate, there has to be a way that that food goes from point A to point B. And faith is the utensil. Here's what I'm saying. In order to receive, you first have to believe. You have to believe. You can't can't purchase it. You can't work for it. You can't, this is a big one, you can't do enough religious stuff to get salvation. Well, I come to church every Sunday. That doesn't make you saved. Well, Well, I give, I give money to the church. That doesn't make you saved. You don't believe me? Try it right now. Take out your wallet and start giving money to the church. Go ahead. We'll test that. That won't make you saved. No. It's grace through faith. And then watch this. And we are saved for good works. Not by good works. You can't do anything to to get in in that place where you say, God, I've done A, B, C, D, now I deserve it. No, 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 we don't deserve it. We are saved by grace through faith so that, watch, our lives can be changed forever. This word, workmanship, the Greek word for that word is poema. It's where we get our English word poem, and it means a work of art, a masterpiece. And this is how I see it. In Christ, because of his grace, when we receive it through faith, we become his work of art. And God does not just save you so that you can get a ticket into heaven. God saves you so that while you are on this earth, you can do good works to glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let me give you the summary because we're out of time. Watch this. This is how his story reshapes our story in Ephesians 2. We are dead in our sins. So God offers us grace. We receive it by faith and he changes how we walk. And then we live out this new life by doing good towards others. Can you say a good amen?